Amen. You may have a seat. All right, so that's Acts chapter 12, and we see pretty clearly, pretty plainly in Acts chapter 12 the impossible situation, right? We see it right there in the first five verses. Herod, a, a, a king, is a violent, violent man. It's his, this is Herod Agrippa. He's the great-grandson of Herod the Great, who was the one who commanded all the baby boys the time that Jesus was born to be killed because he was afraid of this, of this new king coming up and usurping his throne. So this is, the great grand, this is the grandson of Herod the Great. His name is Herod Agrippa. He's a violent king. He's, he's in this family of Herods. They're, they're violent. They're all about their control, their power, their authority. And so there's this stirring of Christians in Jerusalem, and, and they're, they're loving, they're peace-loving people. They're caring for orphans and widows. They're caring for one another. They're loving one another. But all of a sudden, those in power see this uprising, and they're afraid of this uprising. And Herod, in order to make nice in Jerusalem, he had to, he had to get along well with the Jews. The Jews weren't in political power, but they had numeric power, and they had religious power. They had a lot of influence and sway. And so Herod, as a political leader, if he made nice with the Jews, that would go a long way for him. And so the Jews hate the Christians, and the Romans don't don't particularly appreciate the Christians because they all feel their power kind of, um, they feel themselves losing power as this group of loving disciples is caring for people, and there's this movement happening, gospel growth, this movement happening. And so Herod's thinking, okay, how do I, how do I squelch this uprising? How do I keep the Jews happy with me? And it says right here in verse 1, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Verse 2, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, so they're pleased with this execution of a Christian because they, they see Christians as apostates, as blasphemers, because they believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. And so the Jews are pleased. Verse 3, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the day of unleavened bread. And, and this is the same time in verse 4 it says that he's waiting until Passover is done for, for the crowds to decide what to do with Peter. This is the same time frame. It's years later, but it's the same time frame that Jesus was on trial, that Jesus was crucified. So this is all happening in the same part of the calendar year that Jesus was on trial before Herod, a different Herod, but a, a, uh, um, a nephew of Agrippa. And so this is all happening at the same time. And, and they're trying to decide what to do with Peter. I think it's pretty clear that Herod's plan is to kill Peter, to execute him. He's waiting until Passover is done. He's going to bring Peter out. He's going to ask the Jews what he should do with Peter. And it, they were pleased that James was killed, right? So it's logical to, to assume they're probably going to call for Peter's death and execution. They called for Jesus' death and execution. It pleased them when James was killed, and now Peter is in prison. And his, his life is in the hands of Herod and the Jews who are going to want to see him killed. An impossible situation indeed, is it not? It's, it's Peter, this little disciple, this little fisherman, this, this guy who is looked down upon by those in power, creating this uproar, and those in power are wanting to squelch this uproar. So Peter is in an impossible situation. He's in prison. He's guarded by, um, let's see here, verse 4, and when... 
he had seized him, when Herod had seized Peter, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. There's 16 soldiers, four squads of four. So a squad has four people, four soldiers. And so they were taking rotations. They were, they were keeping Peter watch. And actually, he was chained to two of them. So there was a guard chained to this side of him and a guard chained chained to this side of him. He's in a prison cell, and then there's two guards guarding the prison cell. So there's always four guards on Peter. Peter, An impossible situation, right? Herod has all the power, the Jews have the influence, and Peter has his back up against the wall. There's no way out of this for him. An impossible situation. And the disciples, the rest of the disciples who are in prison, I have to wonder, what are they thinking? They're terrified, aren't they? They've, they've seen Peter, or Stephen, if we go back to Acts chapter 6 and 7, Stephen, another one of their leaders, was stoned to death for following Jesus. And now they've just seen James, a brother and friend of theirs, a fellow leader and apostle, crucified, executed with the sword, his head chopped off by Herod. Peter, their most prominent leader at the time, is in jail. He's in prison. What are they going to do? They have no power they have no influence. Well, they have a lot of influence from the bottom up, and we'll see what happens here. But they have no influence from the top down. They have no power. They have no way to control the situation. It's an, an impossible situation, completely out of their hands. What do they do? They can't do anything. Verse 5, they can't do anything humanly speaking, I should say. Verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made for him to God by the church. They feel helpless, so what do they do? They pray. You ever been there? You know that there's impossible situations in your life. It's out of your control. You can't do a thing about it. And what do you do? Hopefully in those situations and circumstances, you pray. Before we get into that, let's see what the powerful demonstration is here. So that's what we see as the impossible situation here in the text. And the powerful demonstration is what? We all read it, so I'm going to ask you the question. What's the powerful demonstration? The most basic one. What happens? The breakout. What? The breakout. the breakout. Yeah. So the the impossible situation is Peter is chained up in prison. He's not getting out of this prison alive. Very likely, he's going to have his. He's going to be beheaded by Herod's sword. But what happens? He gets out of prison. He's released. Look at verse six. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night. So Peter's in prison possibly a week here, just waiting until the Feast of Unleavened Bread is to pass. And that very night, so this is the night before he's about to be dragged out before the people and they're going to give the verdict whether or not he should be beheaded. That very night, have you ever experienced that? It seems like you're praying, you're praying, you're in an impossible situation, asking if God would do something and it seems like nothing's happening, nothing's happening, nothing's happening. We can relate to the disciples. That, that's what they're experiencing. Peter's in prison and, and they're praying earnestly, as it says in verse 5, waiting and hoping that God would, would take this impossible situation and turn it into a powerful demonstration. But they had to wait. And it was the very night that Peter's about to be brought out that the powerful demonstration happens. On that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding centuries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stu- stood next to him, and light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side. It's a kind angel, huh? Peter, wake up. He strikes Peter on the side. Peter's sleeping. 
The angel says, get up quickly, and the chains fall off of Peter. Just this miraculous, powerful demonstration of God coming to an impossible situation and and revealing his glory, his power, his majesty. And the story goes on that Peter's led out of the prison and he goes to the house where the disciples are and they don't believe that it's Peter and eventually they, they, kind of, they snap to and, and realize that it is Peter, that God had in fact done a powerful thing. God had demonstrated his power in the midst of this impossible situation. Without God, they're not getting out of this. Peter's not getting out of this alive and the disciples have to wonder what's going to happen to our movement. And Jesus promised this thing is going to continue to grow from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But if our leaders keep getting killed, how? How is this going to happen? This is an impossible situation and God shows up there in that moment with a powerful demonstration of his love, of his provision, of his care for them. That's the story. I want to just pull out some applications from the story. We read it. It's there. I'd encourage you to go and read through it again, and we're going to come back and look at it here as well. But what a great story of an impossible situation and a powerful demonstration, right? The first thing I want us to notice and apply here is that in our impossible situations, God is present and ready to act. Before we kind of dig into the minutia, there's some theological issues that we have to wrestle with in this passage. But before we wrestle with those, I want all of us to notice that in our impossible situations, whatever it may be, God is present and ready to act. He's not removed. He's not just up in the clouds watching things unfold and and saying, well, if you make a bad decision, you're going to get stuck with some bad consequences, though that is true, right? We know that when we make bad decisions, oftentimes there are bad consequences. And, And this surely isn't The impossible situation here in this story surely isn't because Peter made some bad decisions. It's because he was proclaiming Jesus. Okay, but what I want us to see and know is that in our impossible situations, God is present and ready to act. He's not aloof to what you're going through. He's not uncaring about what you're going through. He's not just letting you deal with it on your own. He's actually in that situation He cares for you, and he's ready to act. In fact, he probably is acting, and we're going to get into some of this theological minutia in just a minute here. But I want us to first know and see that God is present and ready. He's not removed. He's not distant. He's not cold. He's not hard-hearted towards you. He loves you, he's present, and he's ready to act. Second application that I think we see from this is that in our impossible situations, whatever it may be for you, we should, impossible situations should be met by earnest and specific prayer. What do the disciples do? Verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison. There's the impossible situation. What's their response? But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And then look at verse 12, after Peter's released. When he realized this, when Peter realized he's released, he's free, he went to the house of Mary. And so there's a bunch of disciples. Here's just a little side note. A bunch of disciples gathered at Mary's house. So earlier in the book of Acts, when, they see that, when we see that they're selling all their possessions and giving to each as any had need, that doesn't mean that we have to sell everything, right? It means we have to hold everything with open hands. Here's Mary with a house large enough for people to be in. She clearly didn't sell her house and give it all away. She said, I'm going to use my house for others to be blessed. So that's just a little side note. I think it's important for us to remember the flow in the book of Acts. 
they're living generously with open hands, but here Mary has a home large enough for the disciples to gather in and pray. When Peter realized this, he went, verse 12, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where they were gathered together and praying. So this is a couple days after Peter was thrown in prison. He goes to the house where he knows the disciples are going to be, and what are they doing? They're praying. This isn't, this isn't a minute or an hour after Peter was thrown in prison. This is likely a couple days after Peter is thrown in prison. It says, verse 5, that they, they made earnest prayer. And then in verse 12, a few days later, we see that they're still praying. So in the impossible situation, they're praying earnestly. The, the Greek word for earnest is, um, I'm going to look at it here so I don't get it wrong. It's ektenos. This is the word that, that Dr. Luke uses. Remember, Luke, the one who's writing the book of Acts, is a doctor. Ectonos means stretched to the limit. Or in medical terms, it means a muscle being stretched to its max capacity. So, so Dr. Luke here is using the medical term. He's a doctor. He's a physician. He knows how muscles can stretch to the max capacity. And he says they are stretching their prayer muscle to the max capacity. They're praying earnestly. They're being wrung out in prayer. They're praying continuously. They're praying day and night. There are ongoing prayers being made. What? For Peter. So in their impossible situation... They pray earnestly. They get to their knees. They gather together. They pray corporately. They pray continually. They continue to approach the throne of grace independence. They know that they can do nothing against the powers that be, although they have the greatest power, right? And so they're tapping in to God. They're pleading with him to do something miraculous and powerful and profound. They're praying earnestly and specifically. Verse 5, it says, that earnest prayers were made for him. I love that. For him. They're actually praying for Peter specifically. God, would you save Peter's life? Would you preserve Peter's life? Would you, would you release Peter out of prison? We don't know what they were praying, but we know that they were praying earnestly and specifically. I, I find that incredibly um, encouraging and also ironic. If, so so Luke, wrote Acts chap, Luke wrote the book of Acts. He also wrote the gospel according to Luke. And so I think there's this parallel here. There's this demonstration here of what's happening in this story and actually what's happening with Jesus when he's praying before he's crucified. And, and I get that. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong on that. The cord is loose. There we go. All right, I'll stop moving. Um, Ectinos is the word that that Luke uses here. Another place that Dr. Luke uses the word ectinos is in Luke chapter 22. And I'm going to actually flip there. Luke uses this word ectinos, stretched to the limit of Jesus himself praying. It says in Luke chapter 22, verse 42 through 44, Jesus knelt down to pray saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. This is as Jesus is headed towards the cross. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, more ectinos, stretched to the limit. That's how Jesus is praying. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. So Luke is saying that Jesus was praying earnestly, stretched to the limit, 
What's Peter doing in this story? Anyone remember? When Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane before he's about to be crucified, does anyone remember what Peter was doing? Sleeping. What's Peter doing in Acts chapter 12? Sleeping. He's in prison, sleep. So Peter's a sleeper. I love this guy. I'm a, I love sleeping. I connect really well with Peter. While the disciples are praying earnestly for Peter, they're, they're holed up. They're, I think they're staying up all night praying for Peter, the one in prison. What's the one in prison doing? He's just sleeping. When Jesus is at the end of his life and he's in agony, praying so intensely that his sweat become, becomes like drops of blood, what's Peter doing? He's sleeping. God is gracious and good even in the midst of our sometimes lazy faith. Peter's sleeping here in this story, but we see Jesus stretching his prayer life to the limit. And what does he pray? He prays, Father, not my will but yours be done. He asks for a specific request. He says, if it possible, take this from me. So Jesus is actually modeling for us, praying earnestly and specifically. He's stretched to the max. He's in full-on intense prayer session, and he's praying specifically that God would, God would take this cup of suffering from him. But he says, not my will, your will be done. And, and I wonder if that's how the disciples are starting to pray too. I mean, some of them were with Jesus here. They understood this. They, they were taught. Luke is recording this. And so back in Acts chapter 12, when they're praying earnestly and specifically, I wonder if they're praying, I, I have to imagine, some of them anyway, Peter's just in jail sleeping, but some of the disciples who are awake and praying and trying to actually live out their faith, they must be praying, God, release Peter. Keep Peter's life. Preserve his life. But your will be done. I mean, they had just seen James killed. Why was James killed and not Peter? We don't know, but God's will be done. So let's keep moving. I think the third application for us is that prayer, even prayer laced with doubt, has great power. Prayer, even prayer laced with doubt, has great power. And, and, and even as I say that, as I wrote that down, it kind of contradicts what I think I believed growing up, that if you have enough faith if you pray hard enough, if your prayers are earnest enough and specific enough, God will answer prayer. And, and oftentimes we hear it, and, and there's certainly passages in Scripture that tell us to pray with faith. However, were the disciples praying with faith for Peter? What do you think? In this specific situation, I don't know that they were. Look at what happens. Okay, so they're praying. They are praying earnestly. They're praying fervently, but I think they're praying faithlessly. Look at what happens in, in 12 through 16. So Peter is released out of prison. When he realizes this, verse 12, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, her name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. I, I just love the specifics there that Dr. Luke records. In her joy, she didn't open the gate. So she hears this knocking. She goes to the gate. She hears Peter's voice. She's like, Peter's alive. Peter's out of prison. I got to go tell everyone. And she leaves Peter standing at the gate. He's, he's just released out of prison. He's got to be trying to keep it under wraps, right? Like, everybody in this city is looking for me. All of the police, all of the political powers, they're looking for me. I just escaped prison. Let me in. She runs away and goes to tell the disciples that she heard Peter outside. Verse 15, they said to her, what? Someone read it. 
What'd they say? You're out of your mind. They don't believe that Peter's out of prison or that he's alive. They are not praying with faith, are they? No. They're, they're praying earnestly. They're being stretched to the max. They're pleading with God with everything that they have. But they're, their minds are blown. They, they don't even believe it. I, at this point, their, their minds aren't yet blown. They're in doubt. They're praying without faith that God would release Peter. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept, all right, here we go. All right, we're going to restart on this point. I'm going to move this over here because it's going to be awkward now. Yeah, you like <laughs> I love this church. You guys are great. I don't know how many churches you could get away with awkward stuff like this happening and still stand to tell about it, but I love you guys because you're gracious. All right, so they are praying. Peter shows up. Rhoda runs in to tell them. They don't believe her. They're praying in doubt. I don't think they believe that their prayers are going to be answered. Verse 15, they said to her, you're out of your mind, but she keeps insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it's an angel. So they're almost creating their own theology here. They, they don't believe it, and then she's insisting, and they say, well, if you really saw and heard Peter, it must be an angel. It must be his, his, his spirit back from the dead, or, or somehow, they, there's no theology for this. They start creating their own theology because they don't even want to believe that God answered their prayer. Isn't that crazy? Peter's there. No, it's not. You're out of your mind. He's likely dead. No, he's really there. Well, then it must be an angel. But Peter continued knocking. Poor Peter. He's stuck outside. Guys, the political powers are coming for me. Let me in. And, and Peter isn't, he's, he's kind of the brash one of the bunch. I mean, we see that through the New Testament that Peter was just kind of loudmouth, and I have to imagine how frustrated he's getting here at this point. Guys, let me in, let me in. He's pounding on the door. Peter continues to knock, and when they opened, they saw and were amazed. Prayer, even prayer laced with doubt, has great power. I think we need to keep that in mind as we pray. There's, there's a beautiful story in the New Testament of the centurion who told Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. Don't be afraid to pray with doubt. Continue to come to God, even if you're wrestling with doubt, and trust him. Trust his grace. Trust his power. Trust that he can do immeasurably more than all you could ask or imagine. And, and here's the fourth application that I think brings us back together. Well, before that, James chapter 5. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. This isn't the James who was crucified, who was executed in Acts chapter 12. This is the James later on in Acts chapter 12 that, that he's still alive, another disciple. He writes, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. That's in the same Bible that the disciples who didn't have faith were praying, and God was still doing something immeasurably more than all they could ask or imagine. Okay, so here it's saying the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. We're also seeing in Acts that the prayer of those who doubt oftentimes, at least in this case, has great power as it's working. And this leads us to the fourth application, that we must accept the reality that there's tension 
for us. I put that in parentheses for us because there's no tension for God here. There's only tension for us in our finite human minds. We must accept the reality that there is tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. We just, we just can't wrap our minds around why God does certain things and doesn't do other things. Why are some people healed and why are others not? Is it because we didn't have enough faith? Is it because we didn't pray earnestly enough? Is it, is it because we didn't pray specifically enough? I'm not convinced that it is. I think there's a tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And, and here's what I want you to hear as kind of a, a pastoral reality and thing that I feel. Two things. One, it's not theologically accurate, nor is it particularly helpful for me or anyone to tell people that if they pray with enough faith, earnestness, or specificity, that their prayers will be answered the way that they were hoping. It's not necessarily accurate or particularly helpful to tell people that if they pray with enough faith, with enough earnestness, with enough specificity, that their prayers will be answered the way that they're hoping. Okay? It's not. However, it's also not theologically accurate, nor is it particularly helpful to tell people that praying with faith, earnestness, or specificity doesn't make a difference. Do you feel the tension there? Praying with faith, praying earnestly, praying specifically matters. Yet it doesn't put God, it, it doesn't turn God into a little genie where he has to do what we're praying for. You, you feel the tension there? And, and we see that tension in Scripture. I mean, with James, the prayer of a righteous person has great power while it's acting. And, and the disciples, in their doubt, they're praying that God would release Peter. And God does it. In, in just a couple verses earlier, James is executed, another one of their brothers and leaders and friends. What, what gives? Why does God take some and preserve others? James Boyce, a commentator writing on Acts 12, says this, God is sovereign in our lives and does what he will do. In this story from Acts 12, he chooses to glorify him in life, the life of Peter, and he chooses another to glorify him in death, the death of James. It's not for us to make the determination, but we are to pray. And like Jesus prayed in the garden, Luke 22, pray earnestly and specifically, but leaving it to God's will. Do you feel that tension? I think as, as Christians, we have to embrace the tension. Don't rush for a definition. I think sometimes we try and put everything into categories, and, and we want to find a definition to, fat, to match our certain theologies. And I think sometimes we just need to embrace the tension and say, God is God, and he is always doing... Here's, here's the catch. Um, I said, in possible situations, God shows up and does powerful demonstrations, right? God, the fact that James died in this passage is also a powerful demonstration of God. It doesn't feel as fair. It doesn't feel as, as right. But God is God. As the commentator said, he chooses one life, Peter's, to glorify him, and chooses another's death to glorify him. And we don't get it. And we wrestle with prayer with faith and prayer with earnestness and, and God uses our prayer and the prayer of a righteous person has great power and the prayer of those who are praying earnestly but filled with doubt also seems to have great power, does it not? So I think we need to embrace this tension and wrestle with this tension and sit 
with this tension before the holy God and just ask him to minister to our hearts in the midst of questions and struggles. Application five, as we continue on in the story. The breath of man ceases, but the word of God increases. So continuing this powerful demonstration of God, look at verse 20. Now Herod was angry, actually verse, uh, verse 18, let's go there. So Peter's released, he goes to the disciples who have been praying for him all, all day, all night. They're surprised, they're doubting that he would be released, but in fact he shows up, God did a miracle, God took the impossible situation of Peter and, and did a holy demonstration of his power, of his grace. There in verse 18, now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. Right? He's gone. What's happening? How did this happen? Verse 19. And after Peter searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea and Caesarea and spent some time there. Herod's just ticked. He, I mean, he, he puts his soldiers to death because they lost the prisoner. And that's what happened in this culture. He puts them to death. In verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. And so what's happening here is these people are coming to Herod looking for food. There's a great famine in all the land. The end of chapter 11 tells us that this famine came. And so the countries of Tyre and Sidon are coming to Herod. They're trying to make nice with him so that he can provide food for them in the midst of this famine. Verse 21, and on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robe. So there's this gathering, and they're going to they're gonna try and make nice and, and um, try and get in Herod's favor. Verse 21, on this appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took the seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. So Herod's sitting up in his place of prominence, delivering an oration, giving a speech. Verse 22, and the people were shouting, the voice of a god, not of a man. They're trying to please the, please the political power and get in favor with him so that they can get food in the famine. And they're saying, when he speaks, it's as of a God, not of a man. He's, he's so powerful. He's so elevated. The people are, are, are saying, he's like a God. He can control things. What do we just see? God is more powerful than Herod, right? The people think Herod has the power of a god, but God is working underground, releasing people from his care. And then what happens here? Verse 22, they were shouting, the voice of a god, not a man. Verse 23, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Same word there. As an angel came and struck Peter's side to wake him up and to preserve his life, an angel came to strike Herod down to take his life. He's eaten by worms. The breath of man ceases, but the word of God increases. We need to, we need to notice the, the limitation of our life here on earth, but the lack of limitation that there is on God's power and God's growth and God's word. I think, it's, I think it's interesting that Peter writes himself, Peter, the one who this story is about, he writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 24 and 25, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. But the grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Peter's quoting Isaiah here. And we see that illustration here in Herod, right, with his pride. He's on top of the world. He has all power, and now he's being undermined by God. God gets Peter out of prison, even though all of the security systems and measures were in place. God is more powerful than man. 
man's breath ceases, but the word of God increases. And then lastly, application six. And bringing it back around to whatever your impossible situation was, this is true for all of us. In our sin, we face the most impossible situation. We've been separated from the holy God. We have no right, no business being in God's presence. Our sin separates us from God. That's an impossible situation for us. We can do nothing about that. Scripture says that all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. We are all in an impossible situation in our sin. But in Jesus Christ, we have God's most powerful demonstration the forgiveness of sins, the acceptance into his presence, the offer of new life. God comes and strikes us on the side, an angel of the Lord strikes us on the side, waking us up, saying, here's the powerful demonstration that I have for you. In the midst of your sin, in the midst of your impossible situation, God has sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, as the most powerful demonstration, offering us new life and eternal life. Listen to how the Apostle Paul words this in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Truly an impossible situation, right? But the text goes on. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, we were dead, impossible situation for us, dead. When we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Amen? Whatever circumstances of life you may be in today, whatever, whatever impossible situations you're in, God can and he will use that situation to powerfully demonstrate his love, his grace, his provision. It may not work out the way that you want it to. That's that tension that we have to wrestle with. But God is sovereign and God is good. And, and regardless of what happens here, humanly speaking, in our human circumstances, he has saved us from the most impossible situation, that created by our sin, making a way, giving us Jesus Christ as the most powerful demonstration of his love and sacrifice and justice and grace. Let's look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We're going we're gonna to just close out this morning with a continued time of worship, and there's communion stations, two here and one in the back. And so I just invite you to the table as we, as we remember what Jesus has done for us, if you are a believer, who's, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you believe that he is God's most powerful demonstration for your impossible situation, we invite you to the table. It's intinction, which means you just take a little piece of bread, you dip it in the cup, and eat it to remember Jesus' body given for you and his blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. I'm going to pray for us. The worship team is going to come up, and feel free to visit the table whenever you're ready, and continue to reflect on this. What does it mean for Jesus to be the powerful demonstration of God in your life in the most impossible situation? And what does it look like for you to pursue him earnestly in prayer and trusting him with results? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are, for what you've done on our behalf, that 
you sent your one and only son, Jesus, the righteous for the unrighteous. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. So now as we continue to sing praises to you and as we visit the table, I pray that you would remind us of the gospel, that we're made new. That God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which you, God, loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you made us alive together with Christ. For by grace we have been saved. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for what you've done on our behalf. And we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.